1: Hi, hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy Howes, the host. Thank you for joining us. Before we get into our conversation with Eric D. Johnson of Fruit Bats, there are a couple things I want to go over. Basic Folk is a listener-supported podcast, so there's a couple different ways you can support Basic Folk. The first one is financially. You can make a contribution at our website, basicfolk.com, under the donate link. And if you give at least $5 a month or $60 yearly, you can get access to our bonus content, which is called Backstage. In fact, uh, we have something really cool that we just posted a couple of weeks ago. It's an extended lightning round with Aeneas Mitchell that you can check out if you are a member of Backstage. And if you're not, you can make a contribution and then you'll have access. Another way that you can support Basic Folk is by signing up for our mailing list where you'll get a monthly newsletter and a couple of announcements here and there. Uh, we don't spam or anything like that. So you can sign up for that. That's also really helpful for us uh, for us to be able to stay in touch with you. Or you can follow us on the evils of social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Basic Folk Pod. Or you could tell a friend. You can leave a review uh, and a rating on Apple Podcasts. Or you can just, like, keep on listening and supporting us that way, which is totally fine. Okay, Fruit Bats have been on the indie rock radar since the early 2000s, so I'd say that calls for a double album compilation documenting their 20 years of music. However, the brains behind Fruit Bats and its only regular member, Eric D. Johnson, is a man who tends to solely look forward. Thankfully for us, he rolled up his sleeves, dug into some old hard drives, and sifted through two decades of MP3s, waves, AIFFs, and the like that make up the band's brand new collection, Sometimes a Cloud is Just a Cloud, Slow Growers, Sleeper Hits, and Lost Songs from 2001 to 2021. On Basic Folk, Eric talks about growing up constantly moving around and the impact on him then and now. He also gets into his time working at Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. His time there allowed Eric to evolve and embrace his folk musicality as well as the punk side he was nurturing in Chicago's scene. He also gets into reframing career aspirations after he saw a lot of his friends who came up in indie rock at the same time he did, reaching new heights that fruit bats just simply weren't. He was afforded many amazing opportunities before he was ready. Recording Fruit Bats' debut album with Tim from Califone, and then getting signed to Sub Pop thanks to the Shins and Modest Mouse advocacy for Fruit Bats. He talks about how he felt about those chances back then, how he reflects on them now. His time playing with the Shins allowed him to climb into someone else's work a little bit, which gave him perspective on his own. There was a time when Eric ditched the Fruit Bats name to record under his initials E D J in what he calls a career stalling move but I pressed him to expand on the fact that it might have been a really necessary move for him personally he's been recording and playing under Fruit Bats again since 2015 which he sees as like a new era for Fruit Bats which he gets into I also brought up Bonnie Light Horseman and the incredible vocal pairing of himself with Anais Mitchell who he calls his main singing partner these days Eric D. Johnson is seriously the nicest guy in indie rock and I I'm here for that. Hope you enjoy. Let's check out a song from Fruit Bats before we get into this conversation. Here's "Without Any Airs," and then we will hear from Eric D. Johnson of Fruit Bats on Basic Folk. One,
0: two, three. I really wish I had some vision. Of the dark But the clever Keeps getting dimmer. Oh no Something to save us From a slippery slope, A sliver of
1: Thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. It's so great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So you grew up moving around the Midwest in the suburbs of Chicago a lot, like about 13 times, I think, before you turned 18. And you've spoken about, like, your weird sense of nostalgia as a kid because of that. So as an adult, what has been your sense of nostalgia, like, now? Um, Or, like, how else do you see moving around that many times impacting you still?
0: That's a good question. That's a very, that's almost like a, that's like a extra heavy question right now too. Cause everything is just like, remember 2019, a hundred years ago, <laughs> um, like it all <laughs> sort of feels like that. So I don't even know how to answer that right at this moment. Um, but I think like, what yeah, I mean, what you're asking, like I, I had a pretty nomadic uh, childhood, pretty like nomadic adulthood, Honestly, like the longest place I ever lived, which I don't even live there anymore, was Portland, Oregon, um, which I uh, sort of came to that realization recently when people are like, uh, where are you from? I'm like, I mean, I grew up in the Chicago area, so that's sort of it. But I'm, I might be from Portland, actually, um, because I, I logged in the most hours there. But um how long? Uh, eight years, or actually 10 years, really. So eight by eight mm-hmm. years and one. It was the, the house I lived the longest in in my life was in Portland, Oregon. Like, by far, actually. So, yeah.
1: That's got to be so weird. I've been thinking about that as, like, I haven't been, no, I didn't have a nomadic childhood, but, like, since college, it's, like, every year or two years, like, moving from place to place to place. So it must be, like, so wild for you to, like... Have stayed in one place for a really long time.
0: Yeah, it's clearly like, and you know, I've moved around a lot as an adult. I don't didn't really have to, but that that's been more of like a choice. I I, I don't dislike it. Um, I sort of I like that perspective shift. But like you were asking, it's like the uh, it, it sort of forces you into nostalgia because um, you're like, oh, remember five years ago when I was inside? You're you're not like, yeah, like when when you moved thirteen times when you're a kid, everything is like in the rear view, you know, my wife lived in the same house her whole life. So like every, every, re- you know, her whole childhood. Um, so all her references are like, she, they it was just like that house, you know, but mm-hmm. I'm always like, yeah. I could tell you what was going on in 1983 because I know what house I lived you in. Have a time so, stamp. Yeah, yeah. there's a timestamp. Yeah.
1: So when you were growing up, like where was music in your life? Like what were your family's like listening habits? Did anyone play music? Um, who was like bringing you like the good stuff to listen to?
0: My family, um, they all enjoyed music. Like my mom was a really good singer. They they listened to like top, we, we had like the radio on in the family, you know, like it wasn't, they weren't listening to like skiffle records or something. They were, they like for pretty much my whole childhood like just the major radio stations playing the um the radio hits I think that probably had like a pretty profound effect on me like 1980s top 40 radio um yeah. in Chicago uh in yeah or Chicago or Detroit or wherever we were living at the time um so in Chicago it was, I wonder if you have yeah. like
1: sorry I wonder if you have like um you know, you'd like moved around to like different houses, but you were like listening to the same like Chicago heritage rock station as a kid.
0: Yeah. It was like, uh, certainly like we were in Chicago from like, we moved to Chicago when I was in like, uh, fourth or fifth grade. So, um, which is, that's like a heavy time for listening to, um, you're really like starting to make your own decisions about like what you like and, um, so yeah, it was the, the radio station in Chicago around that time. was called Z95. That was like the, the top 40 radio station. So I was listening to that. And then I like guess sort of a realization I had is like, um, I was like, uh, uh, there was like a specific era of classic rock radio that became really big in the early nineties, which I, I always thought that I, that was like unique to me. Um, but when I've, Talk to more people who were like exactly my age they were like yeah of course like that's it was sort of like um, post metal post like hair metal pre like Nirvana there was like this little two year stretch where it was like everybody was listening to like Pink Floyd and like Credence they were listening to like music from the late 60s and early 70s Mm. Um, so that that sort of like had this really big effect on me at around age 14 you know like the Led Zeppelin box set came out on cassette and I was like Right. Blew my mind. I got like the Grateful Dead. Like, it was like the, the era of greatest hits, you know, um, mm-hmm. they were doing all these like packaged retrospectives and stuff. And so I heard that. And then it was like, then I started to play music. And then it was like, you know, in by by 1995, I liked indie rock because that was like, uh, I was like starting to play music. And I was like, I'm, I can't play like Pink Floyd. Um, I, can't, I can't like rip a guitar solo. Like I I was not really a punk. Um, So it was like bands like Pavement and and things like that. So the the, the realization I had recently is that like we think of these like uh, your childhood listening is like um, these long epic stretches, but they're not. They're like these tiny little phases that you go to and they're all kind of sewn together. But um, the miraculous realization I had was like in 1989, I was probably listening to like Poison and in 1980, 1995, I was probably listening to like, uh, Pavement and that's only six years, you know, uh, and yeah. those, those are two wildly different, uh, things to be listening to. So, right. um, yeah, that was like, but it was just like that, that, that like stretch between when you're like, um, like 12 and 20 is, uh, it's like amazing. So it like yeah. makes you who you are from totally. a musical perspective.
1: So you were on um, Joe Pug's podcast, Working Songwriter, and um, great conversation. You said uh, it wasn't really a surprise that you wanted to be a performer. You said, I was a weird little show kid, a real ham in the family, making up songs, writing short stories. Um, What memories do you have of that time, and how did it feel to perform as a kid versus to perform as an adult?
0: I mean— the, there's a certain fearlessness that comes with when you're performing as a kid because there's like zero stakes. Like I, I never, uh, and maybe some kids like feel like there's stakes and maybe it's probably different now because it's like YouTube and what, I don't I can't even imagine like what it's like to be a, right. a, a, any type of young person right now. But back then it was just like, it just kind of felt like nothing, you know? And like, I don't know, I would like go sing at like the, lo, there was literally like a local coffee shop. I uh, would go and like sing songs, that it just didn't feel like anything. It felt like busking or something. And, um, and like my friends would come and it just, and that it was sort of like what indie rock was like then too. It was really, it was sort of like a low stakes, um, way to like be creative. And, uh, it was, it was like
1: very, very nonchalant.
0: Yeah. Very nonchalant. And it was kind of like DIY at the time, sort of like pre-streaming pre-so- pre-social media, like however you want to look at it. And I'm not, I'm not like, I don't want to like idealize it or anything either, but it was just like, um, your hopes and dreams were just like, oh, and I to just like, play at like a club on like a Tuesday night or, and maybe, oh, maybe I would like even go on tour and do it. But it was like, it was a really small circuit still, it was still, mm-hmm. still very like, um, pretty like punk rock, you know? So, um, yeah, to have like, I don't know, gone this long and then had like way more happen was just, like a sort of like a fun bonus.
1: <laughs> totally. Uh, You were also talking to Joe about the this is very interesting to hear your perspective about the scando Midwestern vibe that you have (laughs) where you like don't want to be too showy and always want to be low key. But clearly there's like always been this drive to perform. So how have those two sides lived alongside each other for you?
0: Um, I think it's just like tiny, tiny learning experiences, um, along the way. And then just little tastes of things too, where you're like, oh, that kind of felt nice, you know, to have, um, I definitely sort of what I was telling Joe in that podcast kind of came from a family where it, there wasn't like a total premium put on, um, like performing. I felt like it was like sort of embarrassing, you know, to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was like a silly thing to do and, and unrealistic, so um, I think I had to just get over that at some point. but
1: Like career-wise, unrealistic?
0: Very much so, yeah. It was like not I, – I did not sort of grow up with that being like an option necessarily. Like th- um, the sort of possibility of that was like as out of touch as, as like being like, I don't know, going to the moon or something. It was just like mm. – that was not – and it, I, I, I was not discouraged or anything either. So I don't – it wasn't to say – it wasn't like my parents were like the – the like mean dad from dead poet society or something who was like, you're going to become a lawyer. So like no one was saying that to me. So I'm not, I'm not, it's not some sob story, but it just wasn't <laughs> like, um, it just wasn't like on my radar or like a, a possibility. So, um, so again, like, I guess low stakes is like the way I thought of it. It was just sort of yeah. like a, like a fun thing to do, but you would do these things and then, you play shows with like bands that were on tour and and then you would maybe go on tour yourself and you just kind of like see how things worked um, and be like, oh, this, this is actually like a thing that you can actually do. But you have to you have to sort of like uh, pull the curtain back, you know, in order to to figure that out. So I just did.
1: Mm. Um, so when you moved to Chicago, you became involved with the local music scene there. You got a job at the Old Town School of Folk Music. taught classes and worked as a house manager for concerts like you were like the sound guy there
0: i was not the sound guy i was like the the like hospitality guy i would like you know the
1: clipboard guy yeah
0: i was the kind of the clipboard guy and occasionally i would be like the host too. like i would like announce the bands and stuff so
1: did you like hosting
0: yeah yeah i enjoyed it it was like just a, a way to get up on stage Um, Nice. I mean, it was like you're up on stage for like one minute and you'd be like, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Thompson. (laughs) but Yeah.
1: Can you talk about the Old Town School of Folk Music and maybe how the community there helped you figure out who you were musically?
0: Yeah. I mean, when I started there, it was pretty like, it was still really folky. Like everyone was like um, twenty years older than me, and were and li- li- literally, I mean, it was like a, an extension of that sort of fifties and sixties folk revival. Um, it was sort of like Chicago's version of like the Greenwich Village scene, very like Peter Paul and Mary, New Christy Minstrels kind of kind of stuff. So I, I was like super removed from that. I was like not. I was clearly not in that scene, but I was interested in traditional music. Too, in some ways, I, I was sort of more interested in, in, in how I could like um, learn about traditional music and then like make it weird, you know, or subvert <laughs> it in some way. But like, I, I liked having that sort of base for it. Mm-hmm. And then that place was so cool because if you got a job there, you could sort of like um, you could make a life out of it. And they were very like it was sort of like having a family that the for the first time that was like you got to see a bit of the world of possibility, but. Um, it was mostly pretty like, you know, the teachers and things were older, but the, the, actually the other teacher who was close to my age at the time, who, who obviously everybody knows now it was Andrew Byrd. So it was, it was, right, um, right. so, and th- there was like a, a few people, there was like a little bit of a younger crew, but like, um, yeah, I taught classes there. I think the, the thing I learned there the most was like how to perform because you teaching group classes to like groups of 20 people you're singing together, it's like a very beautiful thing, you know, and, and pretty unique. Like, it's like teaching, it's like 20 people playing some song on guitar all at once, which is a, a strange and beautiful sound in mm-hmm. and of itself. But also um, for me, it was like, I would teach like um, sometimes three classes a night. It was like six hours worth of, uh, of just like singing and being in front of people. And it was like a total way to, um, it was like, I, I figured out who I was as a performer and like a, a person on stage. Doing that, which mm-hmm. is sort of a a, a, a very weird um, avenue for that, but yeah, that was like yeah. a lot what I took from that.
1: Right. Well, like on the opposite end of that spectrum, when you were first starting to play in bands in the nineties, you were you've talked about like how there was kind of like a premium on being a jerk, like being uh, like territorial or kind of nasty. Um, and I think maybe in thinking about like the the punk scene or the the rock scene. Um, but how did you see that change over time? Cause you have like talked about how, you know, things have, things are different now. And what do you think caused people to get nicer?
0: I don't know. I think it's a generational thing. I think I don't, if if anything, it wasn't like that people got nicer. I think at least the people that were around me or that I like chose to be around was like the nicest possible people. So I'm not, I, I wouldn't say like
1: Maybe you self-selected. I (laughs) self-selected,
0: but um, yeah, I think it was, it was like, it was straight up just the lineage from punk rock. I mean, it was like, if you think about like what, even what the venues were like still in the late nineties and early two thousands, the whole reason why like rock venues were crappy was because in the 1970s, punk rock was a controversial, weird thing. And the only clubs that you could book them in were the worst dive bars, you know, that were sort of like unregulated and weird and then that became the look and feel of punk rock and that just carried over to indie rock and I was making this like gentle (laughs) songwriter version of that but those those were just still the venues at the time that that those were like still the worlds. um we would even like play venues in like you know in those really early days and there would be like a punk band on the bill and it was like us doing our thing it was just like it was just kind of like still a weird wild west um sort of like funny to think the year 2000 was still closer to the 70s <laughs> or as close to the 70s as as we are from it more or less now mm-hmm. so um yeah there was still kind of that feeling in the air but yeah territoriality scenes and um i don't know just stuff like that it's I like yeah just the feeling of like going to a, a a club on tour on a tuesday night and there was nobody there and Everyone was just like, what the hell are you doing here, you know? So, yeah, I think things have gotten nicer because, like, just that – they've moved out of that generation. Like, venues are nicer Mm. now. Um, Again, there's more of a premium on niceness.
1: Mm, Definitely. Um, So here's a little bit of a setup here. Thanks to one of your students from the Old Town School of Folk Music, you were introduced to and then ended up joining the band Caliphone. And then from there, you would meet the guys in Modest Mouse and the Shins, and were afforded these opportunities that you have claimed in in some situations that you weren't ready for. Like Tim from Califone put out your Fruit Bats debut, and Isaac from Modest Mouse and James from the Shins um, got Sub Pop to interested in signing you. Um, And I've heard your bandmate Aeneas Mitchell talk about this before, like being given opportunities before you're ready. Uh, So what can you say about like that time in your life, how you felt about those chances back then, how you reflect on them now, like were you grateful at the time or did you feel like you like deserved them?
0: Um, I think as far as like the deserving of them, that's really hard to say, like you, Like if you're given an opportunity and it's like maybe before you're ready, um, maybe you don't deserve it at the moment, but you better retroactively be like, okay, (laughs) like I need to like honor this in some way, even if I wasn't ready for it. You know, I don't know if that's a bad explanation of it or or a good (laughs) explanation, but um, and plenty of people are given opportunities or not, you know, so. I did my best to like act on them. Um, I was just sort of young and like, I, and I just mean, I mainly mean from a creative perspective, I was like, wow, I was given like the keys to the keys to the car. And um, mm. when I, and it, maybe it's just cause I'm my own worst critic too, but where I was like, oh, I'm not sure I like nailed that. I should have like worked harder this is maybe just me like looking back on it and being like, man, that's not as good as I'm not as good as I am now. So, Mm -hmm. um, but like, yeah, I think I was like, that may have just been the time too, where you're just like, um, there was like, again, a different, a different standard, a different premium. And indie rock was more of a, like, um, I've said this before, but like, um, I'll say it again, there was more, it was more of a developmental league at the time, it was, it was like, you would sort of, um, they would kind of sign you based on like, oh, that's, this person could be interesting. We'll, we'll see what happens with them mm-hmm. now. I think people are, there's, um, you just, it's just harder now. You have to be more fully yeah. formed.
1: Gotta have like the, the numbers and yeah. the clicks. Yeah. And, and it's streams. all,
0: and, and like pop music and indie rock and everything, it's all kind of like the same now. But back then it was like famously, I think it was like, um, someone at Sub Pop, famously said to James Mercer from Shins, like with the, when that first, they delivered that first record, he was like, wow, you might sell 20,000 copies of this. I, they, like, which was like, <laughs> they sold like over half a million, um, of it, but, yeah, wow. but where, where that was, so it gives you an idea of like where people's brains were at just as far as like numbers went, they were like, we're in this world, but now it's like everything is just like, um, it's all kind of the same. It's it's good and bad. I don't I don't really know how to like um I don't my perspective on it now is like I don't know. Like I'm just inside of it. So, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's like good bad or otherwise.
1: I I work in radio and it's a uh, kind of a similar thing like public radio. Right now it's like it just might as well be those like little uh independent alternative rock stations like you know, that we all listened to growing up, you know, that's basically what public radio is like, where it's like, because it is all about like numbers and audience listening and, and all that stuff now. But like back then it was like, in the, like, we're going to play like Richard Schindel because we like him, you know, and sure. anyways, tangent.
0: I think I house managed rich uh, Richard Schindel show actually at one point at the Old Town School.
1: I He's a lot nerdier than speak. I thought he was going to be. Yeah,
0: I don't. I don't have my re, my remembrance is is hazy, so I don't. I don't know.
1: I, I was also when you were talking, we were talking about the, the the opportunities that you were afforded when you were younger. Like I was thinking, you know, thinking of my own experience being in college and working at like a very successful college radio station, and I was such an asshole, you know. And then like a few years later, you get a taste of the real world, and I'm like, okay. No, I'm not going to be an asshole anymore.
0: What college radio station was it?
1: WERS Emerson's station.
0: Oh yeah, I wonder if I. I wonder if I ever. I feel like back in the. uh, Again, like not to get all like back in the olden times, but that was that was (laughs) always like. uh, you know, like when you would like be in an indie band, you would tour, you would just do so many more collegey things like that. that mm-hmm. It's like not a thing anymore as much, but like not just college radio, but like you would even go play at colleges and play in like the student union and, and make like, some money. <laughs> yeah. It was like this thing. I remember like that was always like a huge deal. If you're like, Ooh, we got like a college show. I was like, you know, and they would pay you like 1500 bucks or something like big money right. compared to like some right. weird club. Club show.
1: Well, it's funny the um, the station that I worked for. It's like so different now, but when I was in college, it had all these like block programming shows. So um, the show that that I was on for like all four years is called was called the Coffee House, and it was a folk show, much like the artists that would come through at Old Town School of Folk Music. Um, we would play those similar artists, but then when I was in school, like. Bright Eyes and Saddle Creek and all of uh, and, the, and sub pop and like all of those like indie acts started like coming up and I was getting like pressure from like the student management to like play Bright Eyes and play Rilo Kylie like alongside Richard Chindel and Richard Thompson and stuff. But um, then I got into it, you know. I just didn't know, you know, that world. Um, but we definitely played Fruit Bats on uh, on the coffee house alongside, you know, like. Bill Monroe or something weird like that. Um, so it was a cool time. But um, your song "When You Love Somebody" is definitely a song we played on uh, the coffee house uh, from 2003. So that song, um, I heard you talk about it. You, it's like a filler song that you you said I wrote it in the time it takes to sing it, but it took off in a way that kind of sets you up mentally for like a big breakthrough with with fruit bats with the bands but it didn't take off in the way that you thought it would so like back then like what was your relationship to success in that time versus now and like how have your career aspirations versus life aspirations changed
0: i don't think i knew at the time what my aspir I, like i was like it was just so making it up as I went along and, (laughs) and again, still sort of like, um, had started off with this really like small scale, um, low stakes vision and was like, but with each little moment or each little thing that you would see, you'd kind of be like, I want this now, you know? So it was like this, um, my aspirations, I did, I definitely like around that time was when like all of my friends were starting to get like massively huge too. So you, you sort of, I did start to have sort of bigger visions because it was like, I saw what was happening to like people who we had been, you know, on tour together playing to nobody. And then they were starting to like fill these giant venues and stuff. So it was like, um, yeah, it was, uh, but I think my relationship to it was still like, I was still working within the bounds of like what I knew how to do, you know? So it was, I, I, I did not, Ever, I think for better and maybe worse, I didn't have like some kind of cynical view of like going in and being like, I got to like crank out some hits. I always was like, yeah. I was like, I'm making relatively catchy four minute songs. So it wasn't, uh, there, mm-hmm. there was nothing to like sell out to or not, you know, like I was just like, I'm going to do what I do and it's going to hit or not. Um, and I had seen the same things like with my friend's bands where it was like, I don't know, there was no like cynical um It was, like, pre-streaming and stuff, and, like, even pre, like, syncs, you weren't like, I need to write this so that we're going to get, like, put on some TV show or we're going to get, like, a million streams. But then they just started to get big because there was was just, like, um, there became a taste for that. So I was, like, I remember... I think at the time when I think back on it, I'm like, oh, I had, I didn't have any aspirations, but when I actually think about it, I think I did. I, I think I was like, I think I was pretty disappointed, you know, that I, yeah. that I wasn't like doing as well as people. It was more just like disappointing too. Cause it's just weird when you see it happening to everyone around you and you, you kind of mm-hmm. started off on the same place. And I think, um, whatever happened, I think I, um, I kept adjusting, and it just took me longer, you know. And then, um, and like some people, because some people you you have these terrible tours, and um, I, I talked about this a little bit with Pug on his podcast. But you you're like they have these terrible tours, and and like um, th- maybe those are the ones that break you, you know. Like some people quit after that, but um, I must have been either a glutton for punishment or <laughs> I had a more of a widescreen vision than I give myself credit for. But I I was just like. I kind of kept going. I always have said, I always have one little thing happen every record or every year or something like that. That's mm-hmm. like, that's like keeps you in the game. Yeah. It's never like a life changer <laughs> where it's just like, and then we synced a song to a car commercial and we got like f- half a million dollars or something that like, that doesn't happen, but it'd always be like one little thing where it's like, Oh well, I yeah. think Okay. That's the, I, I think I can, I'm going to be able to do another one of these and it seems to be working. So yeah, it's a very like sort of, uh, slow climb, but it always seems to move forward every year, not, not by like miles, but by like feet. So yeah.
1: Have you, you haven't seen that Disney movie Encanto? It just came out. No, I have not yet. It's uh like you talking about seeing all your friends like rise up and um, you kind of getting left behind and feeling a little disappointed. the The lead character in Encanto, you may relate to her struggles because everybody in her family has a magical power and she doesn't have one
0: i'm gonna i'm gonna have to watch that i'll watch that with like my nephews or something that'd be a good yeah a good one
1: it's it's a good one i think uh you know not not my favorite of the recent disney output but i thought it was pretty good generation deals with generational trauma And uh, also, you know, being left behind with the rest of your family is doing something else. Anyways, check it out. So when you played with the Shins, uh, 2006 to like around 2011, you said, this is a great quote about that. You said, if you have the ability to play in someone else's band and you're a singer-songwriter and you can do it, there's a lot of good reasons to do it. It gives you perspective on other people you can climb into someone else's work a little bit and it will affect yours hopefully in a good way it'll give you perspective on yours so how did you find your time playing with the shins impacting your own work
0: i mean it was um it was all that that i just said and then it was like um it was another layer of how i said you know a every year it was it was huge for me in in like a million ways basically a it um it I had always really struggled uh, financially before that. And, and like, I had a lot of day jobs and like pickup work and sort of since then I've been able to like make a living as a musician. It was like, uh, I didn't get like loaded or anything from it, but it was like, uh, it was like, became this like steady paycheck of like just playing music. And before that I had had a craft service company for film sets. So I was like a, like an on-site film set caterer. Um, for a long time. and um, Were you and, cooking? Yeah. Um, and so I had like done that for like between the Old Town School and the Shins, that was like my day job, which was like, mm. it was a good day job and everything too. And at, at, like at one point, um, one of the producers who I worked for was like, you need to stop doing this. Mu- you're really good at this. You need to stop doing this music stuff. Like, um, because like, you're going to like you're have a really lot You're a really good of, caterer. Yeah. You're going to have like a lot of success in this- world and like like this music thing is like a w because I was having to like turn down jobs and stuff to go on tour and it mm-hmm. was like a whole thing. But um you know, it was like I actually kinda liked that work but it was like fourteen hour days and like I would mm-hmm. always come home like smelling like eggs and it was like it was really hard work. Um Yeah. And it was but it was also still freelance too, which was great. But also the hard work that came with that too, where you had to like you had to work really hard to like keep it sustaining so Mm -hmm. um after shins i was like i don't have to do that anymore um it was i always say so much of what i learned is like proof of concept too it was like a everything i said about learning more about songwriting and stepping into somebody else's songs every night for two years um but also just like being in that band at that moment was like incredible i got to like the the experiences i had were like unreal like um, the, really the things that you sort of dream about doing when you're like a kid thinking about being in a band I got to like do all those granted it was somebody else's songs that <laughs> that uh, afforded me that but it was still like I played it on Saturday Night Live I like went all over the world and uh, played at these crazy music festivals and I just got to do all kinds of cool stuff and it's the type of thing like I was saying that just makes you be like okay, this is how this side of things work. Um, I really want to keep doing this. It's just like, it just feeds you, you know, it feeds your hunger mm-hmm. for it. And then, um, you know, and I was never quite able to get to that level, but it made me, I sort of like, when my tenure with them <clears throat> was done and I was starting to get back into making Fruit Bats records, I was like, let's like, it was sort of the aforementioned thing of like, um, let me, let me like dig more into these songs. Like, I want I want this to like hit harder I just remember the the sound of going out on stage with the shins, like the sound of that audience. I was like, I'd like to figure out a way to hear that sound <laughs> a little bit more, you know, like the the um, the sound of uh, of people who are just like over the moon that you're there, you know, instead of the right. uh, the like um, Wednesday night uh, indie rock club, forty people, right. um, which is. I appreciate those 40 people too. I'm not, I don't want to punish them for being there, but it was just like, um, you just
1: want, you just want them to bring 10 friends or maybe a hundred friends. Yeah.
0: And that's kind of eventually what happened too. So, um, and like, once again, another pulling back of the curtain, um, and being like, Oh, here's this other world over here. Um, sort of see how things work and, and where you're just like, you know this was that at that point i was um you know 6 years in to like sort of a music career in earnest which which seemed like at the time like forever you know i was like oh my god i'm a grizzled old veteran right <laughs> um, but um you know now of course i realize i wasn't i was still like but yeah it was just it was just a great learning experience on every level
1: There was a time where you were going through some pretty sad personal stuff and you walked away from the Fruit Bat's name in 2013. You put out a solo record under EDJ, which you called a career stalling move. But it seems like for personal reasons, you kind of like needed the reset and you talked about it. You talk about it now as being like a dumb move. But can you talk about how that might have been a really necessary move for you personally?
0: I mean, I think it probably was a necessary move. It was one of those like you can never go back and t- like you can't you can't think of the fatalistic view of like what was what, how the dominoes would have fallen or whatever. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it was like it felt like it, it was, I don't know, a couple of years after that, it felt like a really dumb move because I really did lose. Um, I lost infrastructure like the. Sort of the important things that you need as a as a uh, like a actual working person in a band to like um, make things keep going. Those all went away. Um, I was mm-hmm. completely went back to being like the most DIY punk rock person, and this was like after having been in the Shins and like so it was it felt um, I did feel like there was even at the time it really sucked, but in my brighter moments I did. Try I was, um, I kept trying to think of it as a liberating reset to where, where I was like, yeah, like I, I think you watch
1: your, you watch your bank account go down. You're like, I feel so liberated. The
0: bank account was, was (laughs) gone. Like, yeah. Um, it was gone. I luckily was in a good, like cheap rental situation at the time. And, um, and I will say if you put out a lot of music, um, you really get paid pennies to put out music, but if you, if you put out enough of it, the, the, you at least the the pennies begin to pile up. So, you know, it was like, I was still really like scraping by, but I did not have to go back to, to doing my craft service catering job. And that was like, you know, but I also think like, it gave me a lot of inspiration for writing too. And I, I think I wrote, you know, I started really getting into writing some of my best material after that too, because you sort of Mm -hmm. need to have those life experiences so yeah and then once again i had like some it's always been like the kindness of friends and peers and it was like at that time it was my morning jacket kind of stepped up and took us on a tour and really like helped push us back out so it's always been like um my friends in those aforementioned more successful bands have often Mm. come to my rescue
1: um, yeah, so, like, when My Morning Jacket asked you to open for them in 2015, you were like, okay, I'll do this at, as Fruit Bats. So then you started performing and writing and recording again as Fruit Bats, and you said, like, everything came back, but it was kind of like um, kind of like a B.C. and A.D. to, like, a before and after, like, a new reinvention. Um, so you worked on reinventing the band for the 2016 album Absolute Loser by unpacking some trauma and creating like a more balanced sound for the band. So how did this whole experience help you realize the power and also the limitations of reinvention, like reinvent yourself, but like not to the point where you're unrecognizable and ruin your career maybe?
0: Yeah, I mean like a like a serious reinvention, I don't know, like uh, plenty of people can can pull that off with perfect precision and it's fine. It's it sort of depends on who you are. There's obviously plenty of artists that have done the, uh, like really, I just think music fans and audiences are really smart. <laughs> like uh, uh, as the whole, like they just, cause music is very elemental and kind of simple. And, and like, I think whatever you do, if you're doing it with, with honesty, um, I think people just feel that. So if you do, if you did a a deeply cynical reinvention where you're like, I only make, make electronic music now which is not not to say anything bad against people who who start making electronic music but if you're doing it because you're or or especially anybody that does the kind of like sellout move of um like just making some kind of like really um cynical pop record or something like that i don't i don't know like um i just think audiences are always smart and um they know what you're doing like um Hmm. that's just like like music is like um it's always honest, no matter what, even if like, even if you're doing it in like a really non-genuine way, um, there's an honesty in that too. I just mm-hmm. think like oh, interesting. Just people yeah. know, you know, I don't know. So yeah, yeah. people, people know, people like know what you're saying.
1: Bonnie Light Horseman, your band with Aeneas Mitchell and Josh Kaufman first came together at the Eau Claire Festival in 2018. And I know that you knew... Josh before that, but um can you talk about how you all first connected um and how you keep that initial connection present in the band?
0: Um I think well Josh I had known a long time and he's just kinda like we're both like very social people and we both run in a lot of worlds, so we hit we had like mm-hmm. overlapped with each other like a million times over and had become gotten to be like really good friends over the past like decade or so had had like made music together, but never anything like seriously in earnest. Like he was always one of those people where I was like, I got to do something with that guy one of these days. And, um, and then Aeneas and I met the lamest way possible, which is on Twitter. Um, (laughs) which (laughs) like she, um, she gave me like a Twitter shout out, like at one point, it's like where they're like, I like this band or whatever, you know, and they like tag you. And then I was like, I had kind of just become familiar with her and was becoming a fan. It was like one of those sweet, I don't know, one of the, actually the nice things about social media is just the like, uh, you could kind of like mm-hmm. throw a, cast a line out to a stranger and be like, Hey, I lo- I like what you do and, and I do things too. And it, it was sort of like that. Um, and that concurrently was like, was discovering that she was working on something with Josh. She and I also incidentally share the same booking agent, Fruit Bats and Anais Mitchell do, the, mm-hmm. who books the shows. So there was like some, a little bit of just that, like some strands of connectivity there. Yeah, it's like told this story before, so I won't go too into it, but like kind of caught wind that they were doing something and was like that sounds fun and it's it's sort of like yeah yeah, it sort of like fit in with like um some ideas of like what I maybe wanted to be doing around that time where I was like I sort of want to like reconnect to some like folkier stuff um I want to do something a little more collaborative and yeah it was just cool this is like cool starting a new band I hadn't like started a band since like 1997 (laughs) or something Mm -hmm. so yeah it was like it was just such a cool weird feeling it sort of made us feel like kids or something again, um in that like or like teenagers or something. We also just um really get along well still and like just like we dig each other. I think we all have like differences and sames that are complementary, and like um we're like we're, you know, I don't know, four years into the band now too, which is is actually kinda of crazy and it sort of still feels like a very honeymoonish uh Period or something. So yeah, like we're, we're like um fans of each other. So that's cool.
1: Yeah, the pairing of Anais's voice and your voice together—it's like so brilliant. I like was wondering if you could tell me how you feel about the way your two voices sound together because I can't really think of like think of words that just like are worthy of the description.
0: Yeah, I don't. I think the thing that's cool about it is. Uh, is, well, A, yes, I love it. And she's like, you know, my, at this point now, like I've never really had a singing partner like that. Like where, like the, she's like my most notable singing partner that I've ever had. And like, um I think if you would have like thought about our voices before Bonnet Horseman, you maybe wouldn't have like thought that they would go together somehow, they just do. Um I think we're like, we just respect each other a lot. Um, and like, I think we have a, both a sort of a different approach to singing too. So, um, that like, we kind of give each other space, but I also don't, I don't think there's like a real way to describe it either. It's just like, uh, which I've, I've often had a hard time with Bonnie Like Horseman describing like what works about that band, because it really was Mm. like, we kind of just did it on the first day and we were like, this is awesome. Like we, we just really, it was like pretty great from like the first minute. So it's, it's like a, I don't know. It's just something that works in a way that um, is a little hard for me to describe, I think, but Mm. um, yeah, I think with like Anais and I are like different in our approaches and, and, um, and thereby there's like a, there's something complimentary about it, whatever that is.
1: I would watch a reality TV show of Bonnie Light Horseman making a record, (laughs) going on tour, doing promo. Do you know since you? Do you know anyone in TV that you can make that happen? Yeah, I can.
0: I can. I can talk to some people. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah,
1: because you you are going to put something else out in the spring. I think is what I heard. in original songs. You don't yeah. have to tell me any details, but.
0: Yeah, That's no, I think, I think I can even talk. I think you just to talk about it a little bit. But yeah, like we we like made a new record. So it's 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 happening. It's like, yeah, it's definitely um, we do not think of that band as like a side project or anything. I think it's a it's a concurrent um, concurrent concern for all of us of like with all of our stuff that we have going. But um, yeah, we just like I don't know. It's like we all love doing it.
1: Cool. Um, so Fruit Bats have a new collection of greatest hits, sometimes the cloud is just a cloud. Slow growers, sleeper hits, and lost songs. Celebrating 20 years of Fruit Bats. Um, it's set in reverse chronological order, which is smart. Um, and you said it's weird putting out records for 20 years because I've listened to the earlier ones and it was just a different person, a different project. So I'm I'm always interested to know how an artist thinks back on the person they were through the lens of their
0: old work and what is true for you
1: in that regard
0: that's a good question and i've been having to being forced to like reckon with that question for so long and um it was sort of like kind of going back to the early part of the discussion of like moving around a lot and and sort of like placing a lens on different eras of your life and um I, what I have learned is I have no perspective at all. Like, I don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't know like what, I don't know who I was then. Like, um, or sometimes when I think about like, uh, how I felt about something, I'll actually go back and think a little bit more about it. I'm like, oh no, I thought completely, it was like the thing you were asking about, like, um, you know, did I have huge aspirations? I always am like, no, I had none. And then I think like, no, I totally did. What am I talking about? (laughs) So I don't know. It just goes to show you how much amnesia you get um, with mm. these things. And and it's like, even the, um, how are you look back at it? Like the songs themselves as like part of the memory or something that, that doesn't even really help. Um, so yeah, it's all kind of the same movie. Um, as well. I always <laughs> sort of think of it as like, um, like a movie or something that just had a very slow start to it. So like my, my perspective is that I, that I have less perspective than I even thought. And I, I think that's kind of a good thing in a way. It's all just been like a weird dream. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Man, well, it's so rad to have that collection of songs. It sounds so great. And um, I loved what you wrote about it. And I, before we let you go, will you do the lightning round?
0: Sure. What's I don't even know right. the lightning round, but I'm excited. I'm ready for You're it. You're going to
1: love it. Okay. okay. These are all... Very fun questions to show that we contain multitudes where we can talk about deep emotional th- topics and we can also talk about surface-level basic things. Okay, here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar?
0: That's like a deeper thing because I the first, the weird thing with me learning... Got to keep it on the surface. I got to keep it on the surface. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wrote a song. Like, I, I wrote songs on guitar before I learned a song on guitar. But I think probably... It was probably like "Wish You Were Here" by Pink Floyd, if I was to guess, mm. as as far as a covers a, a cover song goes. Yeah,
1: that lines up with what you're talking about. Yeah. What is your karaoke song?
0: Ooh, it's uh, "Never Tear Us Apart" by NXS, and, or any. And I like ballads on karaoke. I like to I like to bring the house down when I'm doing karaoke. Mm-hmm. But yeah, "Never Tear Us I, Apart," uh, or also "You Are So Beautiful" by Joe Cocker.
1: Ooh, nice one! Yeah. I myself like Silver Springs.
0: Nice by um by Stevie Fleetwood Nicks. Uh, yeah, yep, nice, Stevie awesome. Nicks. Love yep. it.
1: Uh, what is your coffee order?
0: Like a plain coffee, black, black coffee. Um, that's it. And I, do I started like, drinking black yeah.
1: coffee today.
0: Nice. Welcome, yes. welcome, welcome to the world. I, I like fancy coffee, um, a lot. So I, I, I do like to go to like a very fancy like third wave coffee shop with a. A, a hipster barista pouring my coffee through a a beaker of some kind. I do. I do. And paying six dollars. <laughs> yeah. Don't we all? Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, who is your first celebrity crush?
0: Probably Jamie Gertz in The Lost Boys, which I re- recently rewatched. Do you remember her, Jamie Gertz? Short hair. No, long hair. Long hair. Yeah, long black okay, yeah. hair. Sh- sh-
1: yes. She's I remember a- the short hair girl more.
0: Yeah, she was, she was the, the, her probably most famous movie was The Lost Boys and she had like smaller roles in other movies. But, I'm
1: thinking of The Goonies. I'm yeah, sorry. you're thinking of
0: The Goonies. You're thinking of Martha Plimpton. Um, yeah, no, Jamie Gertz, I also, um, for a lot of boys, my age of a, of a certain age, um, uh, Carrie Fisher also in Return Oh of yeah. yeah. Great
1: one. Yeah. Good one. Um, who is the nicest musician you've ever met? The nicest
0: musician. Like, uh, does that extend to like friends? Um, Friends or like, does it have to be like celebrities that you met or something?
1: Why don't you do one of each?
0: I mean, the nicest like general bunch of people in like my world, but who are famous are like, it's like Team Wilco. Like all of those people, that's just like the nicest vibe. Um, mm-hmm. but like in like, I don't know, people I know, like Anais Mitchell, Josh Kaufman. Oh, yeah. And me, and me. We're like the three nicest.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the three amigos of yeah. friendship. Okay.
0: Uh, first album you bought with your own money. I think it was the, the Footloose soundtrack or the mm-hmm. Ghostbusters soundtrack. Both
1: excellent choices. One of those two. Um, Beatles or the Rolling Stones?
0: Apples and oranges. Um, <laughs> I I think they're they're two different, but, um, but I think probably for me, Beatles, like if I was forced, but I love the stones too. So.
1: Final question. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited?
0: Probably Big Sur. Um, you know, it's like right up the road, but like, um, it's as exotic as anything. Um, I was in New Zealand too. And I, I did, I did get my mind blown by Mm. that. Um, Mm. and, uh, possibly the Grand Tetons as well.
1: Nice. Great answers. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, that's it. We finished the lightning round. We've made it to the end of the interview. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're a wonderful guest. It's been really nice to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. You can make a contribution and support Basic Folk at our website, basicfolk.com. Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend. Tell your mom. Tell your financial advisor. Tell your veterinarian. Tell your brother's best friend from high school. Seriously, it really helps. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: Bye. Bye.